Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning at verse 5 through verse 10. Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now turning to our New Testament reading, 1 John chapter 3, we're looking at verses 19 through 24. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 19 to the end of the chapter, verse 24. 1 John 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we have this great confidence as we have sung and confessed this morning already that you are the one who sees our hearts and you see our needs, And so we find ourselves trusting again in you to do the ministry in us that only you can do. And Father, we have a sense of our weaknesses, we have a sense of our strengths, but here, again, we do not trust ourselves, and so we entrust ourselves to you and ask that you would indeed minister in us and to us according to our needs, but not just according to our needs, but according to your promise, according to the greatness of of your power and according to the work of your spirit. And God, we pray that you would do this so we might truly improve and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, but especially that as we encourage each other, that all these things would accrue to the glory and the honor of Christ. It is lovingly and with thanksgiving that we pray in his name. Amen. So I'd like us this morning to take two passages Uh, that deal with the heart and bring them together. 
and to see how they complement each other. And perhaps it's right to say how the one answers the other. And so the first half of the sermon, we're going to look at Jeremiah 17.9, this well-known verse that speaks of the deceitfulness of the heart. It was one of the Bible verses that was on the table yesterday. There were five of them. I thought I could do a pop quiz and see if you remember what verses were written out on the table. They were all really great verses, and this was one of them, and I appreciated that. But we're going to answer that verse with 1 John 3.20, a passage that helps us to appreciate one dimension of how Jeremiah 17.9 can uh, search us out in a way that perhaps would bring us to the wrong conclusion, as we are apt to do many times. So let's look first at Jeremiah 17.9 and consider the deceitful heart that is spoken of there. Why is the heart deceitful? And you know the answer. The heart is deceitful because of indwelling sin. Uh, The heart is sinful. It is incredible. It is capable of incredible evil. And perhaps the question that you're asking yourself, well, is it speaking of a non-Christian or is it speaking of a Christian? And like all trick questions, the answer is yes. It's speaking of both these things. It clearly is speaking at the very least of an unbeliever of all of us in our natural state, uh, that we are those who suffer from original sin, and therefore we suffer under that judgment and the guilt of Adam's first offense, that first trespass. But it also means that uh, we lack that original righteousness in which Adam was created. But this verse is speaking of a third thing, namely the corruption, the corruption of Adam's whole being And the same is true for us in our natural state. There's a corruption of our whole being, of our whole heart, because of sin. And Henry VIII, Shakespeare writes, the best breastplate is the untainted heart. And he's probably right. The problem is it doesn't exist. That none of us is born with an untainted heart. We're born with a corrupt heart. And this verse is is speaking to that. It's targeting that very idea with regard to an unbeliever. But the verse is also speaking to us as Christians. And it's speaking to the fact that you and I suffer from indwelling sin. Now here's a point where we need to be careful and we can't afford to be sloppy. That we believe that because of the work of Christ, that what he has done is twofold. That he has removed the condemning power of sin. That you and I cannot be condemned for our sin. That Christ has truly answered for that. And Romans 5 speaks of this. But it's secondly true that Christ has removed the corrupting power of sin. That what he has done is he has dethroned sin as our master. And as Romans 6 tells us, that it is grace that reigns through righteousness in our heart, not sin. It doesn't always feel that way, if we're honest about it. But Christ has removed the power of sin, both in its guilt and in its reigning corrupting power. Both these things are true. And yet, and yet, sin still remains. This lingering effect of sin, it no longer reigns, but it is there. It is not all-powerful, but it is powerful. It's much like the way in which we ought to consider Satan. Satan is not all-powerful. He is not God's equal. But he is powerful. He is created as a powerful angel. And there's this deference and this carefulness we are to exercise as we think of our great enemy. But we should not equate him as equal to God. And the same is true with regard to our sin. It is true that Christ has removed its ability to condemn us and to absolutely pollute us, but it's still there. 
and it can cause great danger. It has that residual effect. It's much like a situation where a member in my church in Philadelphia uh, spoke of a time in the afternoon when uh, she had burnt something in the oven that she was preparing for supper, and smoke was coming out of the oven, and she took the, uh, the burnt sacrifice, and she took it outdoors in the back steps, put it outside, opened up every window in the house for three or four hours to get all the smoke out of the house. Her husband came home, he took one step in the house, and he said, what's burning? Well, nothing was burning. And the burnt food was taken to the back porch. And all the windows were open, so the air would flow through it. But he could still detect, he could still detect that lingering smell. And this is exactly the case for a Christian. There's still this lingering sin that we have to deal with that we can many times smell. And so this verse very much applies to us, that we still are dealing with this sin in our hearts that many times makes our heart to be deceitful. And by deceitful, it means here that our heart is devious, that it can perform great treachery. It can be insidious. It is vicious, that many times it is, it is fooling us, and many times it is, it is cheating us. It's much like what Esau said about his brother Jacob in Genesis 37. He said, is he not rightly named Jacob? because he cheated me these two times. His name means that. Well, each of us has a Jacob in our heart. And so we can fool ourselves. We can fool others. Or better yet, we are being fooled about ourselves. That many times we kind of overestimate how strong we are or how committed we are um, or how better we are or that we're more pure than we really are. And when in fact it just takes a little bit of a test to, to expose what's what's really going on there. At one moment, Adam is looking at Eve, and he's going, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's gaga. The next moment, he's saying, she did it. All of us have this ability. Or to countercharge, somebody comes and it confronts us, and our defenses go up, and we say, well, who are you? Look at all the faults in your life. Or we make excuses. We're caught red-handed. We say, well, I'm just a weak, I'm just a weak person. And we play the victim card. Or denial, flat-out denial, and refuse to face the reality or the possibility or the tendency that perhaps we have. And this was the case with Peter. We talked about this yesterday when Peter said, I will never disown you. I will go with you even to death. It's amazing when the mob comes in the, in the garden, Peter pulls out a sword. He's, a, he's the bravest of all the disciples, but yet when a servant girl asks if she knows him, he flat-out denies it. Not as strong as he as he thought he was. This is true for all of us. That there are many times when our heart is not telling us the truth and we're not seeing ourselves as we ought to see ourselves. We're not gauging things as we should. It's actually worse than that. It says the heart is deceitful. No, it says the heart is deceitful above all things. There's lots of things that we face in the world that are deceitful. There are many things that we know we ought to be suspicious of, but it says here's where it starts and here's where it ends. There's nothing really that surpasses your own heart for the ability to be fooled. You know, many times we, we see some new atrocity on, on television. We hear of some crime or we witness some scam, and it kind of jolts us. Again, it reminds us what we are capable of as a human race. We ought not to be surprised at the cruelty that we're capable of as people 
And what's so amazing is when we hear these messages around us of, of educators who say that man is good, or people that say that uh, we are advancing so wonderfully with technology, we're going to solve all of our problems, we, our knowledge is, is advancing. And yet we ought to be so relieved that the 20th century is behind us. It was the most bloodthirsty century that this world has ever seen. Because we're so advanced. We pride ourselves because we're recycling our garbage. And then we pipe it into our living rooms through our televisions and our computers. This is a problem. And the Bible is saying it's such a problem that the heart is desperately sick. It's like walking into your doctor's office who has warned you he has bad news and you say, how bad is it? And he says, well, there, there is no cure for what you have. That's exactly what Scripture is saying. It's, it's really beyond evil in terms of its, uh, beyond help in terms of its evil. It's desperately sick. It's, it's corrupt. It's, it's so perverted that in one sense you, there's really no cure f- for this. But more pointedly, it's speaking about this deceitfulness, that this is never going to end until we die, that there's this constant tendency for you and I to be duped. This is going to be a lifelong struggle. And that many times our heart is going to come to us disguised. It's going to come like Judas and kiss us on the cheek and then turn around and betray us. And so we have to be constantly on our toes Alert to this, constantly examining ourselves, like the end of Psalm 139, as we talked about yesterday, search me, O God, and know my heart. Show me those grievous ways in me. Help me to watch out for how I'm lying to myself, where I'm making excuses, where I'm denying what's true. And you just see what complicates this is we live in a society that is filled with false ideas about cures. And we're constantly hearing about education. We just need more information. It's like a friend of mine that I knew that was addicted to drugs. And it never dawned on me that I should sit down with him and and say to him, do you realize these drugs are destructive and they will hurt you? Because I know his response would be, nobody ever told me that. I never would have started doing these drugs if I knew they were dangerous or bad for me. Education is not the answer. That's not the problem in that particular instance. Or we just need more research. Give us more time. Science can unlock and explain all these mysteries. And I am a pro-science guy. I think science is great. But it's not the total answer. Or if we just work harder, if we're just more committed, we can overcome all the prejudices of the human race and all this hatred and all this, this violence. But you see, all of these so-called cures do not understand that what we're talking about is a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem that goes all the way down into, well, our hearts. And it doesn't matter how much money you throw at this, how much information, how much education, how much perseverance. It says the heart is beyond cure. And especially these kinds of cures, which are window dressing. They're superficial. They're important. And they're good for what they were made to do. But on this, they cannot help us. Because as Romans 8, 7 says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law, neither can it do so. So who can understand this? Who can really penetrate to the bottom of this and and discern what's going on? Who can predict this? And that's why we as Christians, we especially as Christians, cannot be naive about sin. 
where our eyes are opened about our spiritual struggles. It's not a mystery to us why the Christian life is so challenging. It's, it's not a puzzle to us, really, why prayer is hard. Because we understand that we're constantly pushing against our sin and our hearts. We're not naive about this. And so we're not overconfident about ourselves. We don't put ourselves in that path of temptation. We make no provision for the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 13, 14. We don't blame the devil when we know we ought to blame ourselves. We know we need to address the heart of the matter, which is ourselves. And it's because we know our heart is not absolutely trustworthy. Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts his own mind is a fool, but the word literally there is the heart. Whoever trusts his heart is a fool. It's kind of like what Jack Miller used to say, a pastor who helped start the New Life Churches in Philadelphia and California. He said, cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think you are. Well, you're saying, well, this is kind of a depressing way to end a conference. A sermon like this on Jeremiah 17, verse 9. But that's why we need to turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Because the answer, uh, Jeremiah, in a really important way, and in a way in which you and I might be tempted to reach the wrong conclusions as we do the very thing that Jeremiah is telling us to do, to, to be careful and thoughtful in the way in which we measure our own heart, in the ways in which we listen to our own heart, that if we rightly apply that passage, it actually could lead us into the wrong type of thinking. This is where 1 John is so helpful. In 1 John 3, it's, again, it says there, starting at verse 19, 19, it says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Verse 24, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John is speaking here of reasons that you ought to be encouraged. The reasons that you ought to be encouraged, no matter what your heart is telling you. There are reasons why you should be encouraged. And it comes in the context in 1 John 3, where his basic point is that if you find yourself loving your brother and sister in Christ, you should be encouraged because it means that in some level, in some way, the love of God is in you. There's these tests that John talks about, and one of the tests that he has about your love for God is, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? You need to pass that test. And so he says in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And this is not an easy thing to do. It's well documented. The hardest struggles that missionaries face on the mission field is what? Other missionaries is getting those missionaries to get along is the struggle. And many times this is true in the body of Christ. It's hard to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's by this, verse 19, this love for our brothers, that our heart is assured before God, that the love of God is in our hearts at work, helping us to, to really try to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in verse 20 he says, he says, what if you pass that test? He says, and our heart does not condemn us. And so we have this confidence before God that something is alive in our hearts because we are loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it speaks of this confidence. And it's speaking of a great situation, that person who has confidence. And you can tell these people, they have that clear eye. They stand up straight. They're, they're taking firm footsteps. 
They have that strong handshake, that ringing voice. These are all the signs we attach to that person who is confident. And it's saying this is that person before God who passes the test. But in verse 20, it's saying, but what if you fail the test and your heart condemns you? But it's not saying perhaps what you think it's saying. John here is speaking to that Christian who has a sensitive heart. He's speaking to us when we are being responsive to God. He's speaking of a situation that is good. And what he's describing is it's a Christian who sins, and they know that they've sinned. And they feel that guilt for that sin. They feel convicted in their hearts. When that happens to a Christian, that's a good thing. That's the way it's supposed to work. But sometimes that conviction and that guilt is stronger than it. It feels like condemnation. And so we don't have this confidence that we were just speaking of. This is a Christian who lacks that peace and joy. They lack that confidence. They feel very insecure. They, they feel like they're the one person who doesn't belong in this, this church, surrounded by all these, these good people. And you see what John is getting at is there's a problem here when our guilty feelings sometimes can weigh us down and drive us to the wrong conclusion. And to make a sense that perhaps the, we should have misgivings about our position in Christ and that we begin to feel kind of estranged from him because we feel so guilty about our sin and we begin to lose our confidence that we could even approach God. And we do exactly opposite of what we tell our non-Christian neighbors. We tell them, run to God, and he will forgive you. Run to him, and he will love you. And we sin, and we, what do we do? We run away from God. <laughs> we do exactly opposite of what we should do. Because we feel like we can't look our God in the face. We can barely look at our face in the mirror. And these doubts begin to invade our mind, and perhaps we think that we're cut off and perhaps even be tempted to excommunicate ourselves from the Lord's Supper as the tray comes by. But you see, this is exactly where our hearts can deceive us as well. There's some of us that are very quick to exalt ourselves and think too much of ourselves, but there's those moments when we're also too quick to condemn ourselves and to humble ourselves there are times that we are overconfident, but there's also times when we are way too insecure. And what John is saying, ultimately, it's not about what your heart is telling you. It's about what God says and what God promises. Because you see, your heart and my heart are not always reliable. And sometimes I'm passing a sentence upon myself that is that's not accurate. It's not true. There's times you're condemning yourself when that's the last thing you should be saying to yourself. And what John is saying is that my verdict is a small affair compared to, compared to God's verdict. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, my conscience is clear in this matter. He says, but that does not make me innocent. He says, God is my judge. And you see what he's saying is that as far as I can tell, I've not done anything wrong. But that does not necessarily make me innocent. It's for God to judge. But you see, you can flip that around. There's sometimes my heart is really weighing me down, but that doesn't mean I'm necessarily guilty. God is my judge. My heart, 
My conscience is not the absolute ground of my assurance. God alone is the judge. My heart is his deputy, but God alone is the judge. And then you read this line, but God knows everything you're saying, but doesn't that make it even worse? Doesn't make that even harder that God sees all of it, that God knows everything about me? Well, that's true, but doesn't make it worse. You see, it's asking a question, who can discern the heart? Who can, who can really know the heart? And it's answered in the next verse in Jeremiah. It's the Lord. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I'm the one who tests the mind. And that's exactly what 1 John 3.20 is saying. It's saying God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God sees absolutely everything about you. He sees more than your spouse or your best friend knows. He sees all of it. As a friend of mine once said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? God never wakes up in the morning and is surprised by something. When we say that God knows everything, we mean it literally. He knows everything. He knows absolutely everything in your heart. He sees every motive. He, he can see all the way down. Uh, another verse that was on the table yesterday of 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he sees how bad our heart is. And it's a mercy that we do not know our own hearts in the way that, that God does. It's a mercy that we, we can't see each other's hearts. If I knew how bad your, your hearts really were, I never would have come up here for this conference. And if you knew how bad my heart is, you would never listen to me. Isn't that a mercy? That God doesn't let us see and penetrate as he sees into our hearts or they see ourselves? But you see, there's, there are no obstacles for God to see our hearts. And yet there is this, this beautiful promise that we have in the gospel that this God who sees everything still grants us Forgiveness, this amazing thing that Jesus Christ, as he goes to the cross, this God who sees all things, sees absolutely every single sin that you would ever commit against him, and yet he still goes to the cross for you. You see, the amazing thing about repentance is that when we come to God in our grief and, and we speak to him openly about our sins, we're not informing him. We're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. We're not surprising him. When you're confessing your sin, you are simply agreeing with God to what he already knows, to what he already sees more clearly, more plainly, more exactly than you do. And so in these moments when we do sin, and we feel terrible of our sin, and we've confessed that sin, it should not drive us to this conclusion that we're cut off and that God is done with us and that he's just fed up with us and our failures and all of our weaknesses, that everybody else is doing just fine except for me. I have no part in the body of Christ. It's at those moments when your heart will deceive you and tell you not to cling to these great and precious promises of the gospel. And what John is saying here is that there's something that is greater and wider and stronger and deeper than your heart. There's something better. And it's this God who sees absolutely everything in your heart, and yet he pours out this unconditional love to you. And so what John is saying is this, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to your heart? Are you going to listen to the Lord of your heart? Are you going to listen to your heart, which is so capable of deceiving you left and right? 
Are you going to listen to the one who cannot lie? The God who is true. The God who never changes. So when we sin, our heart is convicted, and we hurt, and our heart is truly broken, then God knows it. He tells us that where sin increases, His grace increases all the more. When we sense that our heart is deceitful and we feel condemned, to rest upon this God who not only sees, but He sees what we need and never ever deals with us according to what our sins deserve, but according to what our hurting hearts need. This is His grace. Or those moments when we feel like a hypocrite and think, how, how can he love me? How is it possible, this God who knows everything that is false in me? And he says to you and me, with these things, it's impossible for man. But all things are possible for God. Or those times when we wonder about the evil in our heart and how great it is how discouraging it is to us to see so much sin in us and he answers us greater is he who is in you greater is the spirit greater is the grace of god it reminds us of that time when syria came in the night and surrounded the city of dothan where elisha was and his servant comes out in the morning and looks and sees all these these horses and these soldiers and these chariots, and he turns to Elisha, trembling, and saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And what does Elisha say? He says, do not fear. There are more with us than with them. And he says, Lord, open his eyes. And God opens the eyes of the servant, and he sees all these chariots of fire. Our God is greater. And this God doesn't simply describe himself as love when he descended on that mountain and stood side by side with Moses, the scripture tells us in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He doesn't say, well, I'm the God who loves. He says, I am the God who abounds, abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the same uh, incident that is referenced in John 1 when it speaks of our Savior who came full of grace and truth, this abounding, teeming love that just pours out of the fountain of God in his heart to us. This is the God that we serve, this God of mercy and grace that cannot possibly be measured. And this God who tells us in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My ways and my thoughts are as high as the heavens are above the earth, greater than your ways. In the context there, he's speaking about his love for those who repent and turn to him, who think it's impossible for me to get back to him. He's saying, no, stop looking at me in the way you look at yourself. This is why in Isaiah, he says, let us reason together. God says, let us reason together. Though your sins are like crimson, they'll be washed as white as snow. And he's saying, when are you going to learn to look at yourself and to see yourself in the way in which I see you? So even in those moments when we mess up, and we know it, and God does too, he's saying he does not turn away. That even then his promises are true. It doesn't always feel like they are. But they are. Every day doesn't feel like a resurrection day, but it is. 
Because our God is greater. And He's greater than what we see. He's greater than what we think. He's greater than what we feel. He's greater than what we can even imagine. The heart is deceitful above all things, and sometimes it's deceitful about God's promises. Sometimes it's deceitful about whether the work of Christ is sufficient for sinners. And we need to hear again and again the promises of the gospel that Christ is a friend of sinners and that his blood and his obedience and his death and his resurrection, these are more than sufficient to ransom you and me and to rescue us again and again and again. We need to hear those words of Richard Sibbs who says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Our God is greater, but the one who knows you best loves you most. And we ought to give thanks that when our hearts condemn us, we are in his hands and not our own. And that's exactly the point that was read earlier from the end of Romans 8. Who is he that condemns? We come to this end of this great chapter on assurance, and God is asking that question, who is he that condemns? And the assumption is, it's you. You're the one who's condemning yourself. But who is he that condemns? He says, it's not God. God is the one who has declared you as acceptable in his sight through the righteousness of Christ. It's God who has declared you free of your sin and its condemnation. So it's not God. And neither is it Christ. Christ is the one who died for you. And more than that, who is at the right hand of God interceding for you. That just as he interceded on the cross, so also he continues to intercede for you at the right hand of God. Why? To save you to the uttermost. He is not going to walk away from you. So who is he that condemns? It's not our God. It should not be you. And so again, this morning we're reminded in those moments of doubt, in those moments when our heart is wrongly condemning us, to fall back upon something sure and what is solid, and it's the Word of God and His promise to us that all those who throw themselves upon Jesus Christ and Him alone, He will never cast off. He will never turn away. That is our God. And we're so grateful again this morning that he is greater. He is greater than our hearts. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, indeed, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its power. We thank you for how specific it is and many times to show us the clear way ahead. We're so grateful for this, but most of all, we're grateful for Jesus Christ. Grateful to hear from him this morning in his word and his promise to us. Grateful, Father, to receive the sacrament which he has instituted for us this morning to further encourage us. And God, we pray that you continue to teach us to be wise and discerning people, to understand not just the world in which we live, but our hearts as well. Grant us such wisdom that only you can grant to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.